turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. We're now getting to the point in the book where some review may be helpful. Uh, there were several sections in, so I'd like to review the links between the main sections so far. Partially because the link from last week to this is so significant. If you remember, Paul began the book to the Colossian family with a word of thanksgiving. Right? He rejoiced. He began singing God's praise. And why was it that he sang God's praise? Because Epaphras had taken the gospel back to the Lycus Valley, and it was fruitful. It was successful. It worked. They heard the gospel, this word of truth, and they received it, and it bore fruit, and it increased in their life. So the gospel was the link between Paul's prayer of thanksgiving and then his prayer of supplication that followed. So it's also because the gospel worked in the life of a believer that we must pray for one another, right? that we need to bring one another uh, an intercession before God and plead for the full knowledge of the will of God, that we would understand his character and intention in redemption. At the end of that section, he, the, the final mark or the final quality of the life of a person who is walking worthy of the Lord, that matches Christ himself, is that we give thanks with joy in all things because we've um, been strengthened for these times of difficulty. And he says, uh, so giving thanks with joy because the Father has done three things. Remember, the Father has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. And the Father has rescued us from the domain of darkness, and He transferred us in the kingdom of His beloved Son. And it's the mention of Jesus, the beloved Son, that is the key to our next uh, section, right? It was that, it, that He then begins a song of Christ, um, a hymn of Christology, and so in the Christology, we discovered that Jesus, as the agent or the originator and the sustainer, and then the end goal or the purpose of creation, is not only those things in relation to the original or natural creation, but he is those things in relationship to the new creation. That is, his church, this new family, the body of Christ. He is the agent of its origin, he is her sustainer. And he is also her goal. He is that to which he is the one to whom we move. At the end of that section, in verses 19 and 20, Paul said, this is the final point or, or piece of the song, he says, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Christ and by Christ to reconcile. By him to reconcile all things, to himself, by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. And so we see his intention is to bring, in that case, at the end of the hymn, all things, the cosmos, back toward himself. And he accomplishes this, how? Through his blood that was shed on the cross. So this cosmic reconciliation. One of the things we observed about that last section was that everything, 
All the pronouns, all of it is directed toward Christ. So it's this elevated language. He, him, look at Christ. And now the style shifts back to the letter, and Paul addresses you, <laughs> the Colossians. He's applying the hymn, particularly the point of reconciliation, to the believers. Reconciliation then is an important thing to define if that's the theme or the key point of, of the sermon this morning. A reconciliation, quite simply, is the exchange of a hostile relationship for a friendly relationship. We think of this often in, you know, like family situations. If there's tension and brokenness and separation, a reconciled relationship would be renewal, togetherness, Right? You'd exchange the hostility for peace. Enmity, enemies to rest, peace, friends. That's what Jesus did for us. He changed us from enemies of God to friends of God. And that's what he describes in the text this morning. So 15 through 20, reconciliation taught. 21 through 22, reconciliation applied applied to this particular collection of individuals, the church family in Colossae. What this does, the fact that, this, that reconciliation is the link between these two, is that this lens of reconciliation sitting between these two texts also allows us to look back at the hymn of Christology, right, this hymn of Christ, and to answer the question why he's doing some of these things. Why is reconciliation necessary? Is because of the consequences of the fall, because we are enemies. Reconciliation answers why he accomplished that in the second part of the hymn last week. Um, a, do a few more things here, just familiarizing ourselves with the text, and then we'll seek the Lord's help in prayer. So this is three verses, is, where, is what we're looking at today. Verses 21 through 23, all on the screen. And there are three themes that are in the text. This is not the outline, but there are three themes that are found in the text. They're all significant. The first is the work of Christ. This is what he has accomplished through his obedience and his death on the cross. The work of Christ is introduced. Then you have this call to faithfulness, right? The response that we would have to the work of Christ. He says, continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast. Don't be moved away from the hope of the gospel. And then finally, we have a Paul's interaction, his role in proclaiming that same gospel. So those are three of the themes that, um, that are flowing in the text. And the reason I bring that to bear here is because those really are the three themes of the rest of the book. What we look at next week, and this occurs in reverse order. So what we look at next week is Paul's ministry to the church in Colossae, his apostolic goal for the church. This is the responsibility given to him by God that not in an apostolic way, but the, same, the similar responsibility of teaching, instructing that he passes on to Timothy and to Titus and to others. So it really is the work of a shepherd. Following that, so the shift is in chapter 2, verse 6. We read through 2, 5 in our reading this morning. So 2, 6 shifts. And this is chapter 2. The remainder of it is Paul's primary argument against uh, the syncretic religion, right? All this blending of faiths that is, a, that is an opportunity to have happen in Colossae. He says, don't blend anything with Christ. Instead, 
be faithful to him alone, right? Christ alone. So continue in faith, grounded and steadfast, really is the point of chapter 2. Don't bring other things to Jesus. And then you might say what follows in chapter 3 and into the beginning of chapter 4 is the application of this, is the application of Christ's work. If Christ has done this, then how might we respond? The response of the believers to the work in Christ. And it shows up in all sorts of different ways, with our affections being set on Him, shows up in our interactions with one another, the love that we have for each other, um, the family relationships, all sorts of things that He addresses in chapter 3, the application of the theology. So I bring that up to show like, that this text introduces a lot of what Colossians is, uh, is talking about for the remainder of the time. As far as we're looking this morning, these three verses and the outline here, is that there's really four points. There's four points to the sermon, and it all is very personal. It's all about what God has done, what Jesus has done for you which is, if we're the readers, we're, we're in the place of the readers today, is what He has done for us. He observes first our past, that we were enemies of God. He moves to consider our present, that He has made us reconciled to God. Right? We are uh, now His friends, God's friends. Why did He do that? The purpose in order to present us holy, blameless, above reproach. And then, sorry, it's not alliterated. Um, this is the condition. If. <laughs> if indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast. So the past, our past, our present, purpose, and the condition. Let's seek the Lord's help as we look further. God, these are your words. You have spoken these truths to your people. You promise to and have preserved them for your people. These are a faithful English representation of the very words that the Apostle Paul spoke by the inspiration of your Spirit. What a treasure that is, that we have the opportunity to hear from you today and have confidence that this is your voice. I ask for humility, that we would be willing to receive and to respond to this true and living word, and that the story that is told today of a believer perhaps would multiply as more individuals who are enemies today may be made friends through the death of Jesus. It's in His name that we pray these things. Amen. So Paul begins with a statement of everybody's past. This isn't just a statement of the Colossian believer's past. <laughs> this is a statement of humanity, of every human being. This is at least your past, if not your present. <laughs> and that is that we once were alienated and enemies. We were alienated and we were enemies. That's the first real statement that humanity is at war with God. Alienated and enemies communicates this natural contrast to reconciliation, right? If reconciliation is the removal of enmity, then we have to have enmity to begin with. 
And so he states it. You all had enmity with God. It's the condition that makes this peace necessary because we had separation, we had distance, we had dysfunction, and we had unrest in relationship to the divine creator, sustainer, and end of creation. That's a really big statement. (laughs) How exactly did that happen? And Paul's writing to a group of people who understand the gospel story, and he doesn't really reiterate it here. So we'll fill in some of the gospel story gaps that that aren't his intention in this text. How did we all become alienated and enemies of God? And the story begins in the beginning, when God makes humanity. As the crowning jewel of his creation, he places them in this garden, having fashioned them after the likeness of his own image, which we saw last week, is represented to us fully in Jesus Christ. So he makes humanity after his image, and he declares them to be very good. Nothing is wrong. There is no enmity. There is peace. And then, as we know, he gave them a command. Do not eat from these two trees, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. And upon the deception of the manipulator, the accuser, they disobey, they eat from the fruit, or they eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Their eyes are opened to their own evil, and they acknowledge that they actually have become it. They are the evil. And so, that produced enmity with God. They were sinners who had broken a completed creation. Other texts, not this one particularly, Romans develops this beautifully. Other texts describe then what happened when Adam and Eve have children is that all of their children are born according to Adam and Eve's new broken nature. They're born sinners. And so Ephesians 4 summarizes well. He says, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanness and greediness. This is the human condition in its natural state. All are now born today as enemies of God because of sin. That's the specific point that's going to be made here in a moment, that the emphasis in this text is not necessarily the collective whole, but it is the individual, the personal alienation and hostility the individuals had with God. Because it is not every individual that has experienced reconciliation, right? So he's talking on a specific level, on an individual basis. He moves kind of from this abstract, you know, an an enemy. Whoa, okay, that's a point to be made, but it is a little bit of an abstract point. He moves from abstract to concrete when he says, so, so how is it exactly that I was an enemy of God? You were an enemy of God in your mind, and that is demonstrated by your wicked works. So the emphasis here is not on Adam, as we might find in Romans 5. The emphasis isn't Adam and his offense. The emphasis is your evil, your past offenses, these sins that you have accumulated against God. 
He says that you were an enemy in your mind, which is not necessarily referring to this, you know, organ of intellectual thought, but to the mindset, the disposition of the entire person. Every person in their wholeness at one point, when they're born and as they grow, is against God. So this whole person, who you are inside and what you do outside, is an open rebellion against the one by whom and for whom you were made and by whom we are sustained. So the arrogance is a little bit unsettling of the natural state of man, isn't it? That we would live in such open rebellion against our maker, sustainer, and the one to whom uh, uh, that, we, that we are intended uh, to please. So our sin is what has separated us from God that our wicked works, our evil, has manifested, it reveals, it shows our enmity with God. Colossians 3, a little bit later, is going to describe this. He says, therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. Now, this flies in the face of all cultural messages, doesn't it? This is not what anyone ever outside of God wants to believe about humanity. We would prefer to believe that inside of us there is a spark of goodness or even divinity that needs cultivated and fanned. And as we do that, goodness increases. Goodness is grown. And that could even be the solution to the struggle, right? We, we can have faith in humanity. Uh, there is inherent virtue, just needs developed in us. And so pursue kindness and, and give someone a hug and smile and, and be generous um, and, and, and kind that is going to rid the earth of the majority, not all, you know, but the majority of evil, and it will produce a generally happy society where we can interact with each other as humans were intended to interact with each other. But that doesn't understand, that position does not understand the desperation of the human condition. Attempting to address evil with the morality of humanity is like handing a trauma surgeon a Band-Aid to treat a severed carotid artery. You cannot fix it that way. You're dead. It won't work. It's not enough goodness. We can't throw enough of our own goodness at the problem. So understandably, it's a strong nature, but we just want to talk for a moment about why this is such a strong statement, understanding our, our nature and depravity. So it, again, what Adam produced, what Adam and Eve, their children, the way in which they were born, we made the statement they're born in Adam's nature, but what exactly does that mean? It is this continued and very settled state of antagonism. It's separation and rebellion. Uh, since the fall, this nature has been passed down from parent to child, and we've all inherited this sin nature. It doesn't mean, and depravity doesn't mean, that we will express evil to the furthest extent possible. 
It's not what it means. It doesn't mean that, well, look, I'll do as much bad as I can because I'm depraved after all. No, it means that every part of me has been affected. I am completely shaped by my nature in my father, Adam, and my allegiances and my affections are shaped by that sin. I've been corrupted, poisoned, polluted. Our minds are darkened. Our eyes do not see spiritual truth. We love what we should hate, and we hate what we should love, and we're so defiled and dirty, and our wills once perhaps Adam and Eve's were free to service to God, ours are now free to serve our father, the devil. And I know that's strong, but that's the situation that we're in. We sin because we are sinners and we have a sin nature. That's why we do what we have done. And that means we've been separated from a holy, perfect God. A proper understanding then of this first statement, this confession, what it, it does two things. It, it elevates the perfection and the moral splendor of God. It makes Him uh, undeniably untouchable, right? We can't, we can't get there. We can't do that. I'm not that. What it also does is it elevates, or perhaps deepens, the significance of our sin, of how bad just a little white lie is that when we have broken God's law, we're done for. We've broken it. It's shattered. It's like shattering glass. You know, like I just hit it in that one spot, but the whole thing is ruined. I no longer have moral splendor to offer to God, so I need it from somewhere else. And that is what moves us to the second statement, which is our present and this is beautiful. He makes two statements once again. Uh, a new condition, right? Once alienated and enemies, now reconciled, which is meaning that we have peace. Peace is accomplished. The God who once was my enemy is now my friend. And then he states the means. How did this happen? In, through, in some way, the body of Jesus, his flesh, his physical form, through his death. So through the death of the body of Christ. Often that word flesh, just a point of clarification, if, if this comes to your mind, often that word flesh has a negative connotation throughout the New Testament. Why is it? He could have used a different word here uh, to describe something different, but I, he's really intending to emphasize the humanity of Christ, that he wore human form. So he's not emphasizing his flesh as we talk about it in the battle against sin, like this flesh that remains and constantly calls us to sin and darkness. That, not in that way. He's talking about just this, you know, the body of Jesus. I think he uses this word in order to contrast it from the, the Christ's body that he sang of in the hymn. It would be confusing if that was what died right afterwards. So yet now he is reconciled in the body of his flesh through death. So as the hymn said, Jesus' blood shed on the cross is the means of reconciliation, the end of verse 20. And here it is the physical body that's identified as the means of reconciliation, the physical death of the body of Christ. Peace with God could not be accomplished any other way 
than by the death of Jesus Christ. Not, we couldn't have peace with Him any other way except our own eternal death, if that even is peace. But that's the other way that uh, reconciliation is resolved, this enmity is resolved, is peace by exile, peace by eternal death. So Jesus' death then is, it is this climactic act of reconciliation. How is that? How is it that death brings peace? That's not something we normally would connect. How is it that death brings peace? The reason that Jesus' death brings us peace is because of who He is and what occurred on the cross, those two things. Jesus was the divine Son of God, the eternal triune, the eternal second person of the Trinity. And He takes on this human form in order to be fully man. And He lives a life of complete obedience, never failing at one point in the law. He could not, for He was God, and yet He satisfied it fully as a human being. He walked, being filled with the power of God toward obedience. And so he obeys fully in every way, never chipping the glass, right? And what happens on the cross is that Jesus walks to death, and he willingly places himself in front of the wrath of God. He becomes, he takes upon, he inherits all of the sin of anyone who will rest in Christ. On the cross, the the wrath of Almighty God is poured out in heat, in fire, in anger, as Jesus bears the eternal wrath of God against sin. That only means something if I'm able to stand behind Him, doesn't it? It only means something if it worked for me, if He bore God's wrath against me. Otherwise, here I stand condemned. I will bear God's wrath against me myself, and it will be eternal, and it will be eternal separation. But if the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ could in some way, by His graciousness, by His kindness and generosity, be applied to people, be applied to other enemies, well, then we have hope, don't we? He took my death, and in exchange, I receive His life. I know that all of you who are here that, that know this story and that it's precious to you and that have been transformed by it, this is, this is old. You've heard this a thousand times, and yet, how marvelous is it that this is an incredible exchange, Jesus for me, my death for his own life. What a tremendous exchange. And it is only then because God has poured out his full wrath against God that he has no wrath for me, no wrath for anyone in Christ. It's all gone. It's all removed. That's how we have peace. It's a tremendous gift. Just observe the comparison. <laughs> between what we've accomplished and what he's accomplished in these first two points. What did we do? 
bunch of evil. That's what we did. Even in all our goodness, all of the morality we could throw, Isaiah says it's like filthy rags. It's not impressive. It's not beautiful to him. Compared to how good he is, compared to how moral he is, I've got nothing. So I'm the evil part of the equation, and Jesus is the moral, sacrificial, righteous part of the equation. It's tremendous. It's a beautiful story. It's the only way towards life. So just, com- just contrast who we are and who he is. And I'd encourage you, if this is a new story, if this is not something you believe, this is why humility is sort of prerequisite toward faith. <laughs> because you have to acknowledge that you have nothing. You have to acknowledge that, you, that you're evil. You're against God, but somehow in His grace, He was for you. So why did He do that? Why such a, pre- why, why such a miraculous gift? Why such grace? Why bring a sinner near? The goal of the atoning death is clear. In order to present us holy, blameless, and above reproach, so that he could form, so that he could refashion a broken creation to be the body of his son. Something, this body that is fully acceptable because it's found in Jesus. This body that holiness communicates complete dedication. It's set aside to him. It's consecrated to the service of God, reserved for him and for his work, absolutely set apart. That's holiness. Blameless is spotless. It is without any, any blemish. This is, the, this is the word that's used to describe a sacrificial lamb, but it has no spots on it. So that really is a metaphor for what's happening inside. There's no stain. There's no sin. There's no immorality. There's nothing to condemn. There's no unrighteousness there. And then this above reproach describes someone who is... Um, I mean, blameless is another word, so it's a little confusing, but irreproachable. Uh, It's the same word that's used later in 1 Timothy to describe the essential quality of a shepherd, one of the leaders of God's people, is that he doesn't have things that stick to him. No accusation or condemnation lands on him. He's above reproach. I can't help but point out Paul's... uh, alliteration here? (laughs) He's a Baptist after all, right? That's actually the only reason I put those up here. Those are the three Greek words that describe the reason. It's one positive thing, holy, and then two negative things, which we use that in English as well, ah, as uh, a prefix to negate something, right? So we are holy, completely set apart, not with spot or not immoral, and then not with reproach. Now, is that you? That's a trick question, isn't it? (laughs) Is that us? Are we holy, blameless, above reproach? Does this describe a present reality? Or does this describe a future reality? Which one is it? And which one does Paul intend? The answer is yes. The answer is that it is both. They're both described, and, and, and different texts will have different emphases, but this present and future reality are emphasized, and we're going to talk about that for a moment. We cannot have reconciliation, which we possess. We have, we're at peace with God. We cannot possess reconciliation without purity. 
It's a prerequisite to peace with God. So you do possess holiness, blamelessness, and above reproachness in Jesus Christ. To draw near to God in Him is to experience purification. This is one of the themes of the Old Testament. We'll just mention it briefly, this, this idea between clean and unclean. And normally, from a human perspective, if any unclean thing touches a person, that person becomes unclean, right? It's very natural. This is how disease works. This is, we, we get this idea. Wash your hands, you know? Jesus, in His humanity, is the only human being to ever be able to approach an unclean thing, touch it, and transfer His cleanness to the unclean thing. These are His miracles in the Gospels. And this is the miracle of reconciliation, that when Christ comes near a sinner, when God comes near a sinner, they become pure. They become clean. So it's a present reality. You possess, Christian, you possess a new nature, an immaterial, invisible inside that has been reborn. As Romans 6 describes, your old man has been crucified with Christ on the cross, and the new inner you was raised with him from the grave. We're about to view that visibly in baptism, that reality. Nothing more needs accomplished in your nature prior to this presentation of the church as holy, blameless, above reproach. Nothing more needs done in your nature. As our hope is real, actual, and present in chapter 1, the first few verses, so also our holy, blameless, above-reproach nature is real, actual, and present. So, God's view of you, this is an application of this point, but God's view of you categorically shifted upon your union with Jesus. When someone was unified with Him, God's view of you completely changed. This is an essential part of the concept of reconciliation. You don't move back and forth from enemy to friend to enemy to friend as you sin and as you do right, as you sin and as you do right. We don't shift like that. It's a categorical change. God is not disappointed with you, Christian. God is not frustrated with you or angry with you, even with your sin. because he poured out his anger and frustration on Jesus. He does not raise his hand against you, ready to strike you. He struck Jesus. So if you have taken refuge in Christ, then there is no condemnation left over. Importantly for us as believers to also say, Neither is God impressed with you. He's, he doesn't love you more when you're more obedient. He doesn't think of you more, more of you, in your sinless sacrifice, <laughs> what, or selfless sacrifice, what few moments of those there are. No, His affection and joy could not be increased by your morality. Why? Because he's as satisfied in you as he is in Jesus. And if you look back here, we don't have anything more than Jesus. 
So this is a present reality. It's also a future one. And we feel this tension, don't we? We feel the tension between who we are on the inside and how we act on the outside. These things are too good to be true. The statement is too high, too holy to be true of me. My activity is not holy. My activity is not blameless. My activity is not above reproach. It is reproachable. I'm not like this by a long shot. So Paul reminds us here that this new status... Would someone be able to grab me a tissue from my office, maybe? Thanks, babe. That this new status is being applied, right? This status is real of us inside, and it's becoming increasingly real on the outside. My actions increasingly look like Christ. Now, that happens in a variety of paces in different people's lives, It's all according to his grace and to his kindness toward us. But this is what he's doing. It's our sanctification, progressively slow change into our outsides looking like our insides are. And this is why our works have nothing to do with our justification. This is what sets Christianity apart from any other faith, is that my goodness is not related to God's perspective of me. It's related to a disposition of gratitude and seeking to mirror by his grace and through his strength that which has already occurred. And so it is future. Those who are holy in nature, status, and union will become holy in our whole person. Take hope in that. Take comfort in that. My body needs remade so that it matches my new nature. And this is the hope of resurrection, another thing that will be imaged for us in baptism. Finally, we have this condition if. Oh, such a scary word, that if. (laughs) If you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a a minister. What he does, he's building a metaphor here, metaphor of a house, Um, so he's saying continue, grounded would be like the foundation, steadfast is like Uh, The strong walls and not moved is like that even if something were to go wrong, it's not going to ruin the building, right? So we continue in the faith. That's the call that we would stay, that there's the spiritual home that's been built for us, this gospel, this message of hope, and there we are in it. And it's as though our feet have been poured into the concrete and our spine is attached to the pillars that hold it up. And here we are, grounded, steadfast, immovable. And we continue in that. We don't run from the building. We don't run from the gospel. We remain. We stay. Don't go. Stay in the house. And it's easy for us to read conditions as threats, isn't it? It's easy for us to throw out everything we've talked about when we hear the word if. (laughs) Oh, so it does depend on me. So I do have to continue, because if I don't continue, then I'm not holding in blame, then I'm not. And we just look inward, and there's turmoil and anxiety, and there's no, there's no help there. There's no help inside us, right? So how is this functioning? And, and, and I'm not intending to, to neuter the condition. The condition stands. It's a real condition. You must remain in the faith. It's undoubtedly serious. Eternity does hang in the balance of remaining in the gospel. 
but it needs appropriately understood. Paul's not asking us to engage in this micro-analysis of spiritual performance that we're so good at doing. He's not asking us to constantly condemn ourselves in Christ. He's saying, look back to Him. He's saying, remember it again. He's saying, look to the cross again. Don't refuse to hear the gospel. Because what happens? Well, Demas happens. That's what happens. You have this person that's commended at the end of the book of Colossians. And then in a book that follows, I believe 2 Timothy, it says, Demas has forsaken me. He's no longer in the family of faith. And what we believe is that based upon the entirety, the theology of Scripture, that that does not mean that Demas was transferred from enemy to friend to enemy. It means he was an enemy of God who lived amongst friends of God. And then because he walked out of the house, because his true colors were shown, he forsook the gospel. Don't be like Demas. Don't walk out and be proved to be a liar. Not that this is a one-to-one, but don't be disciplined from a church family. Hear the voice of your church family. Be willing to humble yourself in confession and faith and remember the gospel. These are all important things. So we continue. We walk. It's, a, it's perhaps the analogy of a runner running a race. Right? This person has been equipped by God physically. They've trained to run well. They enter this race. They're strong. They've, they've prepped. And so they're going to start the race, and someone says, you're a winner in my book, but not if you leave the path. Don't run off the path. You're like, right, but a runner doesn't do that. Runners don't run off the path. They're there to do the race. We're here to walk in Christ. We're here to continue in the gospel. This is who we are. So don't run off. Because then we might be proved not to be runners. I know that that doesn't necessarily allay all fears. And I know that you're weak. I'm weak too. But He will hold us fast. He will hold us fast. So God's intent is to progressively align our activity with our status, and this is going to take place at varying times and varying degrees. But it's in this condition, in this condition of being at made peace with God, that Paul expresses great confidence. He, he believes. If we look back to verses 3 through 8, you see a lot of parallels between um, verse 23 and verses 3 through 8. Uh, you see faith, right? They have, they have faith in Christ Jesus, and he's excited about it. Now he says, continue in the faith. What was it that caused that faith? Well, they heard the hope of the gospel. And he says, don't be moved away from the hope of the gospel. And then he rehearses three similar things, these last three phrases, which are also present in verses 3 through 8. The hope of the gospel, the gospel which you heard, right? How'd they hear it? Epaphras. Epaphras took it to them. So we've heard the gospel. It was preached to every creature under heaven. Remember the global emphasis of the gospel. It has no local boundaries. It goes wherever it, was, it, wherever it wants to, and it does whatever it wants to. It changes people, causing fruit to be born in their lives and causing them growth. And then he says, of which I, Paul, became a minister. So there you have it was heard by the Colossians, its universal significance, and that it's preached by God's servants, Epaphras and now Paul. So he has full confidence that this will work. What do we do with this? I think it's pretty simple. There's two things, and it depends on who you are today, what you would do with this. If you're an enemy of God, 
if you are not found in Christ today? And I know that's a strong statement. If you have not been brought to the cross in humility and had Jesus suffer for your sins, then humble yourself. You don't have the present that's described. You, your present is enmity, and the end thereof is death. That is not what anyone wants for you, and hopefully it's not what anyone wants for themselves. So, humble yourself by God's grace. Repent and believe in Jesus Christ for the salvation of your sins. Exchange your own death with Jesus's, and he will exchange his own life towards you. If you have made peace with God through Christ, if you are a friend, then rejoice and continue. Smile, for you have life, and it has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with him and what he's accomplished. Praise God for the gospel of grace, true grace, grace alone through Jesus Christ. Would you stand with me and let's sing Amazing Grace.